It's Thanksgiving Eve on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We will not have this podcast on Thursday or Friday. We're all going to be enjoying that time with our very limited bubbles of people to avoid the coronavirus. I'm Chris Quinn here with my esteemed colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and Chris Wernowski. I hope you all have a great Thanksgiving. I hope the people who listen have a great Thanksgiving. You all ready for it to start? Yeah, I'm going to John Houston's house. (laughs) (laughs) I am not. (laughs) Yes, John Houston, who despite all of the advice from every health official in the country saying stay home, don't mingle with others, is having a family get together. But outside, and each family will sit at a separate table. What a numbskull. He's supposed to be a role model. Let's begin. Are we seeing signs that fewer Clevelanders than expected are hitting the road on Thanksgiving and will heed the suggestions they shelter in place to fight the pandemic? Lieutenant Governor John Houston aside, Chris Wernowski, what are we hearing? Are people starting to back off of travel plans? Right. So the city of Cleveland has projected that uh, 120,000 travelers will pass through the Cleveland Hopkins International Airport from the Thanksgiving travel period, which runs... Uh, for 10 days between Friday, November 20th and Monday, November 30th. That number is actually down from a earlier forecast of 140,000 people. And uh, of course, that forecast comes as, as, you know, health officials and public officials and, you know, both at the state, local and federal level are pleading with Americans to not get on a plane this, this year and visit their family. Uh, for Thanksgiving as an effort to stem the spread of the COVID-19. Last week, you know, I mean, we're under a a voluntary stay-at-home advisory, but, you know, at least 120,000 people are are not going to heed that warning and are going to be traveling. But but the good news is is that fewer people have decided to do so, according to the city's projections. There's still going to be a lot of people on the road, though. I mean, this doesn't mean that everybody's staying home. It's just... They had originally predicted a big surge of travel. This is going to be a somewhat smaller big surge of travel. Right. So it's it's still not something that I think people are excited about. I, I think, you know, outside of the major airlines that are, are going to, to make some money. But I, I think, you know, for the most part, I think there's a lot of concern about what's about to happen. And, and we, you know, where we'll be in a couple of weeks when you know, we start to see cases pop up as a result of this holiday. We engage with people in a, in a variety of ways through our texting accounts and through email. And we, we have heard from quite a few people in Northeast Ohio that say, yeah, we canceled all our plans. It's heartbreaking. And, or I'm going to visit my, my elderly mother, but we're not going to eat. We're going to sit down. We're going to put a mask on a whole lot of people who are making Thanksgiving feasts are, are almost doing a drive through at their house so that their extended family members can come get the feast, but they won't be sitting down together. It was very encouraging to hear a lot of that, but that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be a whole lot of people We're also still likely to see a huge surge of this thing uh, a week or two from now. I think it was interesting, Laura Johnston, I think you said your school district uh, made a last minute decision to keep kids home all of next week when that surge in coronavirus could be out there so that they can get a taste of, is there a big surge? Are all these people going to be sick? Seems like a smart move. 
It does. I would have appreciated it before like three o'clock yesterday <laughs> when we got the notice. So um, there was a whole lot of texts going around, people going, oh no. And But yeah, the County Board of Health had recommended that schools go remote after Thanksgiving in general. Our plan is for one week, but I, you know, people are realists and they're looking around and, and everybody knows if the numbers keep climbing and, and, and jumping with a bigger spike after Thanksgiving, we might not be sending these kids back to school before January. Yeah, but that's smart. It gives us a chance to see if the predictions of a massive, you know, there there are people that are predicting this is going to be the Sturgis biker rally times a thousand. You know, that was one event where a bunch of knuckleheads went, didn't wear masks and spread the virus pretty far and wide. This is a much bigger set of gatherings. And so a lot of people fear what what we'll see. So that's actually I I thought that was a smart strategy. It's going to, you know, make it hard for people like you <laughs> to work and have their kids at home because you have a boss that is very demanding. He should stop being that way. You're listening <laughs> to this week in the CLE. Say it ain't so. Is Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish using no-bid contracts yet again? Lauren Johnston, this boggles my mind all year long. They keep doing this. No-bid contracts are anathema to good government. The reason we have public bidding is to make sure everybody gets to compete for the public money, that it's not just being handed out to favored people. What's the latest? Yeah. <laughs> you love these no-bed contract stories. So the county wants to complete these building modifications at the proposed site of their temporary diversion center. They're up against a tight schedule. They've got to spend the money by December 31st because some of it is coronavirus aid money from the federal government. They can't start until county council signs off, which isn't expected to happen until December 8th. Hence the existing no-bid contracts. They want to take these contracts that we talked about in the summer and add on to them to allow them to do some work at Oriana House, which is an organization that would oversee day-to-day operations of this temporary diversion center. So so the diversion center is a good thing. And yes. we, I don't believe we've talked about it a great deal on this podcast, but but we've advocated for this forever. Um, the there there are a bunch of ministers in Cleveland that have advocated to get people that are suffering mental health problems out of the jail and into mental health treatment. Uh, Armin Budish has been a champion of this. It's a really laudable thing because it reduces the jail population and it treats people like human beings. But you can't keep going to the no bid. Well, corruption will eventually play out if businesses know, oh, I can do a backroom deal. I'll nudge, nudge and get in and get in on it. I don't know how many times Irma Budish has used that December 31st deadline for spending the federal money to go around the rules. And of course, you got a rubber stamp county council that just just okays this stuff, defends this stuff, and and then criticizes anybody that criticizes them for going this sleazy route. It boggles the mind. Dan Brady is leaving as county council president. Maybe the next one will have a greater sense of what the public responsibility is. Uh, We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Are we actually within weeks of seeing a coronavirus vaccine in Ohio? Jane Cahoon, this was kind of a good news surprise coming out of yesterday's briefing by Mike DeWine. Sounds like we've got a whole lineup of vaccines headed our way. Yeah, how about that? Um, We're supposed to get our first batch of a coronavirus vaccine around December 15th, DeWine said. He said he found this out on Monday during calls with governors and, and White House officials. They're still planning how and 
uh, how to distribute it, et cetera. But they, but he said the date looks pretty definite. It's going to be sent to 10 hospitals around the state that were selected based on geography, population, and access to this ultra-cold storage that they need uh, to keep the vaccines. And and as you probably know, you need a couple of rounds uh, of these vaccines. But here in the Cleveland area, the sites are Cleveland Clinic and and Metro Health. And uh, the governor did say the first people to get this vaccine are going to be those with the greatest risk of contracting the virus, probably healthcare workers that are in direct contact with COVID patients and in all probability workers at congregate care settings like like nursing homes. But they're still kind of refining all that. Um, and he said that once the first doses arrive, more are going to start arriving, you know, every few days after that. I think the first one, first batch is coming from Pfizer. And then, um, then after that, Moderna. Um, so it's good news, as you said. Yeah, a couple things. The, the I, I would think they would try to uh, vaccinate people living in congregate care facilities as quickly as possible because that would cut the death rate by 80%. That's where 80% of the deaths are. So I bet that they, they're up there. But I, I do think it's interesting. There's a couple of hitches here that make me worry about the delivery of this. As you said, you've got to keep this sub-zero, right? I mean, yeah. and university hospitals is not on the list, but that's a place that couldn't even keep the embryos frozen, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, So if the vaccine somehow goes above that it 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 very quickly is no longer useful i think it's a, for one of them it's six hours you got to use it once you you thaw it out so what happens if it goes above that temperature you know will they be honest and say okay that's a ruined batch are they going to inject people with it and the idea that you've got to get two i'm presuming you have to get two of the same one that you can't get the pfizer one week and the moderna two weeks later that if you get pfizer you get pfizer both times what happens if they don't have it? I mean, it's, you know, they going to yeah. earmark, okay, Jane Cahoon, you were here, so this vial is yours next time? Or is it going to be catch as catch can? Yeah, we didn't get any in, Jane, so you have to go through this again. Oh, I can't imagine they would start you on on a vaccination regimen without having the booster available for, you know, you having to come back in three weeks. I can't. You, like, you can't imagine that? Well, I mean, look, I can imagine a lot of things. <laughs> but, I'm glad this is being recorded, right? But, but, but you know, I, I you know, I, I would, I, I would hope. Let, let me put it that way. I would hope that they would, they would make sure that they have that three weeks. I, I, to get back to something that you said a minute ago about why they wouldn't uh, inoculate the the patients at the nursing facilities. I think because you know, those folks don't get up and leave and go out into the world. I, I, you know, I think there's a strong case to be made. And and, and I know people don't like to hear this because, you know, we like to think that uh, prisoners are devoid of humanity, but I think there's some value in getting uh, jail staffs and prison staffs and congregate care staffs all, all immunized because they're the ones that bring that into the facilities. You know, when, when you hear about it being in the prison, it's like, well, where are the prisoners getting it? And it, it's like, somebody has to bring that into the building. And and so I think that's why they do that. Yeah. You know, you, you raise a, a very interesting point, which, which is why this is a fascinating discussion. I mean, I can argue really strongly that 
if we can stop 80% of the people from dying by inoculating people in congregate care centers, that's pretty good because the death is the worst result of this. But you're right. We, when you're in a state prison, you are a ward of us. The public mm-hmm. is responsible for you. And as we know, it has raged through the prisons. So these are tough decisions. All, all I know yeah, is well, that, and that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a political landmine. You know, I mean, I have a sneaking suspicion that the Twitter feeds and email accounts of politicians who say they're going to give vaccinations to prisoners before you know, people who are free. I mean, you know, they're going to lose a day just responding to emails to that. Well, but, it, but it's but, a good thing, Chris, but it's, but it's, but it's played one no of the role reasons. in the coronavirus. So, you know, that won't be <laughs> Well, but I mean, that is, it, it is one of the places that are making our numbers so high. You right. know, and, and it's, it, it makes you. sense that those are the places, it, you know, that's where it has to be. I uh, the one thing is clear is the four of us will be on the very back end of the list. So. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. If it's okay for twelve thousand people to attend Browns games, why is Mike DeWine blocking people from attending high school sports? I can come up with theories about this, Chris Ranowski, but <laughs> but if I'm somebody that wants to go to a high school sports game, I really am going to have a hard time accepting. 12,000 people going to Browns games. What what did Mike DeWine have to say about high school sports yesterday? So I think there is a concern that having certain winter sports with crowds is going to be a problem, which is which makes sense. Uh, he, he basically said, let's keep crowds from uh, going to things like basketball games and, and we'll have these games without fans so we can maybe address the spread of this. But then the Ohio... Uh, high school athletic association followed up his announcement by reminding people that parents were still permitted in the game. So, you know, each player has two people that are going to be the potential of a couple of people who are going to be there. So it's not really shutting down anything. It's, it's just, you know, saying that if you're a fan of high school basketball, you don't, you don't get to go unless you have a kid that's playing. As far as the logic as, as to why it's okay to pause this, but it's not okay to pause the Browns games. You know, I think football being an outdoor sport, I think, has something to do with it. But I also think the fact that it's big business also has something to do with it. And, yeah, you know, I mean, this is this is football central here, you know, us in Texas. (laughs) and, And look to their to their credit, both the Browns and the Bengals put together a plan where they keep people very distanced in that stadium and if if you watch the game you can see it and so their their argument is we got a lot of room in the stadium it holds way more people than that and and so the 12,000 people seems like it fits you got to get them in and out of there and we 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 might not ever know if there were an outbreak out of the browns because there's no real tracing being done or publicized but we have not heard that there's been an outbreak out of the browns games so we'll see and they're not home for the next two weekends anyway it's probably a good thing because this thanksgiving weekend is where the thing is going to spread you're listening to this week in the CLE What's the somewhat suspicious reason that the reopening of Interstate 490's intersection with East 55th Street, the gateway to Opportunity Corridor, won't open next spring? Laura Johnston, this threw me. Uh, We were expecting 55th Street to be open in May. Now it's not going to open until November. But the reason really throws me. What what is it? All right. I'm going to explain as best I can, and then you can throw your flag as 
high as you'd like. <laughs> so the reason is a design change made following a review of plans for the road. That's the idea is going to create a more gradual slope where the road will pass under East 55th Street and attach to Opportunity Corridor Boulevard. Boulevard. The original design had a slope grade of 5%, and that was within accepted standards. But the more gradual slope at 3% is going to make it safer. Now, you might ask, why is this coming up now? And that's a very good question. I don't really have an answer for it. But ODOT has contracted with Cocosing for the $151 million part of this road. That was actually $30 million less than budgeted. It's a design-build process, so Cocosing is handling both of those. And they submitted this 5% grade. It was accepted. And now they've changed their mind and want to make it 3%, which is going to add another six months because they need yeah. to do more uh, digging. This this just kind of boggles my mind. We've been making highways in this country for a long, long time. There's There's very standard practices for this. And the idea that we could be this late in the game and saying, oh, you know what? Three degrees is probably too steep. Let's go at five degrees. It, it, it's mind boggling. I wonder if, if because Opportunity Carter, I think, is going to be a 35 mile an hour road and I 490 coming into it is a high speed highway, they just hadn't planned on enough deceleration space. Because if you're flying down the road at 55, 60, 50 miles an hour, and going into that area, maybe the three degrees would have been terrifyingly dangerous. But I, I just, I, I, I'm just not buying that. That this was well, we have some money left over. Let's ease the hill a little bit. I, I that doesn't make sense because there's got to be a basic standard here for what an underpass degree should be that you would have thought would have been there from the beginning. They're claiming that the five degrees would have been okay. But but they just prefer it to be three degrees. I, I I just don't. That doesn't make sense to me. I want to know the calculation. Like every half a degree takes an extra month and a half. Like I mean, six months is a big time to put on there just because you're digging a little deeper. Yeah, I I, I and and this late in the game. I mean, it, it's November. This one was supposed right. to be opening, and in we've May. been closed for like what more than a year. I'm trying to remember oh, yeah. when those. Closures went up. Not that yeah. I'm driving much anymore <laughs> to see them. I, just, <laughs> I, I, just, I, I we've got to ask more questions about this or get the correspondence and put in some records requests because I, I, I suspect somebody made a big mistake and they found it in time to keep a disaster from happening. But how did that? How did that come to be? Uh, what the press release said just didn't seem to feel true. The whole project is supposed to open next November. One year from now, that road will be open. It's a direct link from the highway system to University Circle, which will be nice, but but always suspicious of last-minute changes to things like the grade of the road. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Are Ohioans getting another big break on how long they can drive on expired licenses and license tags on their cars? Jane Cahoon, when this is all over, I think we're going to be able to do a study on whether this can affect justice reform. One of the big problems we, we've written about in Cuyahoga County is the number of people that get into a downward spiral in the justice system because they get caught driving on a suspended license. But it's been completely legal to drive on a suspended <laughs> license for a long time now, and they've well, extended it. An expired one anyway. I don't know about a suspended one. But uh, yeah, Ohioans are now going to have until July 1st to renew their driver's license that would otherwise have expired this year. And this is because of a new law, uh, House Bill 404, which Governor Mike DeWine signed 
this week. And so it basically extends this emergency law that we already had in effect because of the pandemic. So um, it applies to any state issued licenses or registrations, including temporary tags that were set to expire from March 9th, 2020 to April 1st, 2021. So those licenses are going to stay valid through July 1st, 2021. And um, so, so yeah, people have some extra time. I think there's going to be a great research project here. If we go back and look at the number of people that were cited with driving on expired licenses in the year or two before this started and what happened to them and the, and how they got caught up in the system compared to the period after, I think we're going to find that life is a lot better. <laughs> that will be interesting. This go is ahead, Chris Warnowski from, from an anecdotal perspective and as somebody whose you know, team is going to have to tackle that job. I just, <laughs> the assignment <laughs> is coming to chime in, but, uh, <laughs> but um, we did a story earlier this year, uh, actually it was in October, about a South Euclid woman who, um, who, or who, a woman who had a, a gun drawn on her by South Euclid police. And one thing that really stuck out to me, because I edited this video, was there's a moment in it where, you know, they're they're looking at her information and you hear the cops say... Well, she's driving on an expired license and then there's a beat and then he goes, but I guess we can't do anything about that because of the pandemic. Wow. And, and it was, it was very telling. And, and I mean, it, and it says it, it, I mean, it, I mean, it really does say a lot about how, how police do kind of not stretch, but I mean, you know, sometimes there are officers who, you right. know, are going to cite you because they had to go through the, you know, the the painful process of pulling you over and talking to you. And so, let's remind people what happens after that. You get cited with having the expired license. You have to go into court. The judge finds you. The, the, you get hit with all sorts of stuff. And if you are somebody that doesn't have money and it hap we've demonstrated this over and over, mm -hmm. it just gets worse and worse because then your license is suspended until you pay it back. And if you drive to work anyway, you get cited again, you get arrested. It, it's it's a ridiculous system for destroying people's lives over something that is not a huge affront to society. And I, we, we are going to have concrete proof, I think, at the end of this. I don't know that we would have had it with the, the original period, but by extending this to next year, we're going to have more than a year of it. More than a year where police could not cite people for having an expired license or tag. And I, I just think we're going to be able to show the world that this is good for people in poverty to keep them out of the, the miserable cycle, that there's probably a better way to deal with expired licenses than destroying people's lives. So and you there's a really easy way to do this. And it, it would be to say, you know, like, I mean, make it a, a you know, $20, you know, I mean, a, a very minimal fine unless unless you're driving in the course of a, of a, of a more significant crime. Like, don't let this be the only reason that somebody gets caught up in this ridiculous court cycle of, you know, these, these very minor, you know, these misdemeanors that end up becoming these sort of life breaking, you know, parts of people's lives. You're right. And, and we will be able to sort of demonstrate that. So something to look forward to. Can I add one thing in here? Because, Laura Johnson. 
Thank you. So I, the, my first question when I saw the story from Andrew was, what about my e-check? Because I owe two of them to the state. And they said December. Um, and the good news is you have till July to get your e-checks too. Well, Except and if you decide to renew your registration before July 1st, and then you're going to have to get the e-check first if you do that. Right. The only hammer they have on e-check is the registration. So if you don't, if you don't renew your tag, you don't have to do e-check. But you're right, Jane. If you want to get the renewal and you're due, they're still open. They're still doing it. Yeah. So. You know, it's probably a good time to remind people the, the BMVs are open. They've been open since late May, although they were closed earlier in the p- pandemic. But it, it's a good time to remind people that for a lot of services, you don't have to go there. You can do things like renew your registration, get your temporary tags or order your plates at their website, which is oplates.com. So just, and they also have a service where if you do have to go to a BMV office, you can check in online before you go and hopefully, you know, cut the time that you have to be there with other people. Yeah, I suspect they're going to push the date for when you need that secure license ahead again, too. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We talked a while back about an effort to spare a death row inmate from execution because he was deep into dementia. Chris, this has a kind of a tragic ending on this story. Right. Uh, James Frazier, who was on death row for uh, for murder, was was the the subject of a very kind of unique but emerging issue in 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 the corrections world, which is this this massive aging population of inmates that require a lot of care and a lot of um, a lot of 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 medical, you know, who have a lot of medical needs. Um, He died. of what was likely the coronavirus, uh, the, the the he died last Thursday, and um, and he was he was fighting to get off, his attorneys were fighting to get him off of death row because he had dementia and he you know he did not know where he was and and what was going on and they basically said that he had no no real concept of of reality anymore and and he likely died of the coronavirus. It was, you know, he was, he was really, he was 79 years old. He was at risk. You know, he was, he fit a lot of the, um, the high risk sort of, uh, um, you know, people who, who, who would get the, get the coronavirus. And, and this is, again, we talked earlier about just the, the massive stress that this has put on, on our, our correction system. And, and this is just another example of that. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Let's end it with a Thanksgiving story. What are the charities that traditionally serve Thanksgiving meals to the needy doing this year to make sure everyone can have a Thanksgiving feast? Laura Johnston, we checked around today because they obviously can't bring people in together because that would spread COVID. What are they doing? So they are offering to-go meals and even drive-through services for Thanksgiving dinners. St. Augustine prepares about 12,000 Thanksgiving meals every year. Um, and this year they're, they're doing the same, but they are giving them out where you have to make an appointment. I think it's between 11 and 1 for our Thanksgiving day and you'll get a time that you can come pick it up. So you can get your turkey and your potatoes and, and all of the, you know, the fixings, you just have to take it to go. There are some people that will be allowed to eat in a congregate space. Um, homeless people are allowed to come in together to eat, and they're going to follow all coronavirus safety guidelines, including limiting the number, hence, you know, the appointments 
beforehand, but they are going to do it, which is great news. And then actually the Greater Cleveland Food Bank had a whole list that we published online um, and in the Plain Dealer, I believe, of places that you can get a hot meal this week, but most of them are just going to be pickup. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it for the week. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs>